Kelly, and you're listening to part two of our collaboration episode with Swampside Chats, discussing Stafford Beer's Designing Freedom. If you haven't caught part one yet, I'd recommend pausing this episode, going back one and starting from there. Otherwise, enjoy the show. revelation of market truth that happens in the sort of high bourgeois period and then everything <laughs> mm-hmm. after that is deviation yeah and like by contrast then like you've got beer here who says the workers of a society can in fact design a society that will run itself along cybernetic principles but that doesn't have to be a kind of like emerging from the noise of the market that it is possible to do better than random chance if you apply some basic principles of organizational science Right. And like Nick Land in particular, who claims like to be a cybernet cybernetician. He is the worst fucking read on cybernetics. I fucking hate how (laughs) that shit. And he uses the goddamn word to justify his bullshit all the fucking time. And I want to fucking punch him. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Basically, he he takes that sort of like logic that like runs through that sort of complexity argument that runs through Hayek. And turns it into this sort sort of like vaguely theological notion called cosmic anarchy. Yeah. He refers to it as cosmic anarchy. And basically everything in the universe is becoming complex, including society, societies as a whole are becoming complex, increasingly atomized Mm -hmm. to the point where it just expand. It just like cuts itself all 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 uh, bits and pieces just like completely separate. And it's become more and more of a metaphysical concept as it's gone along. Like, there's a recent article that he did in um, Jacobite. Uh, I forget the title of the article itself, but basically he tries to argue that, you know, it's something inherited in the universe itself that, like, basically race, science, and freaking... Um, and uh, what's it called? Fucking... Uh, I'm... Fr- and freaking uh what like iq I'm, bullshit no 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 it's like uh physics theoretical physics mm-hmm. uh so modern theoretical f- like yeah modern mechanics. theoretical f- yeah quantum mechanics basically justifies this sort of cosmic anarchy view oh, that all atomize the of extreme atomization of all subjects within uh the yeah. death of subjectivity. Yeah. And so when a philosopher reaches for quantum mechanics, you you reach for your Kalashnikov. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so is he gonna is he gonna be a like a character in like Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven? He's gonna he's gonna be DLC. He be. He's gonna be game. He's gonna be game breaking <laughs> DLC. <laughs> So, like, the, the thing here is that, like, I mean, even even if some of that, that analysis, is some of it, I mean, if, look, I'm not going to fucking say I'm, I agree with Nick, right? But, like, some of it is kind of true at its limit, right? That, like, again, the, the world is at its limit ultimately unknowable. It tends towards generating proliferating variety, and it will eventually peter out in a kind of uh, entropic heat death. However, even, even if that's true, like, navigation is still possible, right? Like, it is... Um, to, to go back to the kind of uh, navigational metaphor from which cybernetics is kind of it, 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 the word comes from, like that the, the, the steersman in the boat on the ocean, like the ocean is crazy fucking complex. You're never going to understand the position and velocity of every 
molecule of water, you're never really going to understand the kind of the entirety of the weather system. And yet navigation is still possible. Like it is, tr it is still tractable, tractable in practice by doing this kind of uh, constant feedback loop of evaluate, adjust, evaluate, adjust, evaluate, adjust, right? Like that steering action allows for that kind of tractability even in the face of something that tends towards chaos. So like I, it's it, for me, it's a lot like... Um, you know, uh, people tend to have this thing where, you know, they believe that such a, such a quantity is at 100%, such as like human agency. You know, we, we, we start out with the belief that human agency is at 100% and like we're totally masters of our own destiny. And then they find out that that's not the case. And then they go completely nihilist and like, we must have 0% agency, right? Like, it, it, <laughs> throw it all out, right? This kind of shit. And it's like, no, don't, don't throw it all the fuck out, right? Like, there's, there's a lot of numbers between 0 and 100, right? Like, you know, that you, even in the face of not having total control, you can still have in practice good enough control um so it kind of ties in with some of the stuff we we covered in people's republic of walmart right that like um you have uh these kind of like planning systems being deployed right now which are not perfect but they are more than good enough you know like it, it, it for walmart and amazon right like you don't have to calculate the entirety of the economy in order to do good enough adaptation. You can just kind of run a couple of calculations in an Excel spreadsheet and round it to two decimal places and you'll get more or less the right kind of result. Um, so yeah, if, fuck land, Jesus, that fucking guy. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we constantly dunk on land and general intellect yeah. unit. <laughs> still, he still hasn't um, taken me up on that offer of a, of a boxing match. Uh, that I <laughs> Um, that sounds charity too satisfying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> charity. <laughs> what charity would he donate it to? Like HBD research? No, no, no. <laughs> just, just kick his ass. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I think that's all the sort of important stuff, right? To to kind of really nail down there is that like we're this 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 can be a great antidote for antidote for getting us away from like perfect solutions. Um, like cybernetics in general can get us away from obsessing over like having to get every tiny little thing perfect before doing anything. Cybernetics emphasizes smart adaptation and feedback and learning as its kind of core core sort of building blocks for building better organizations. I mean, that is like a potentially hopeful metaphor because you know if if like human beings can like you know navigate the like pacific oceans on you know like these like rinky dink boats <laughs> yeah, you know totally. to colonize polynesia like maybe we can somehow like get through like the climate apocalypse mm -hmm. that we're basically creating you know what i mean yeah yeah um, but like to get there requires what 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 beer's advice is at the end is just basically to d destroy most of the institutions we know because they're beyond the point of saving um mm -hmm. they, they are they are so unadaptive that they have become crystallized and rigid and they have to be smashed and other institutions have to be built in their place and um, i think what is interesting for me about that idea is that beer's sort of language and the metaphors he employs would suggest that that rigidity would also cause them to be very fragile um, mm -hmm. and so there 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 must be properties of these systems that have have developed such rigidity um that would allow them to be overcome right like yeah. it can be exploited because if, mm -hmm. if you're rigid then in a, in a viability sense that you're not doing very well um yeah and um yeah so i don't know i i've been i've been trying to read like sort of cybernetic strategic theory 
uh, lately. It, it is it is scary the the extent to which like the sort of post Vietnam War developments in in U.S. military strategic theory line up with a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, critiquing mm-hmm. a lot of the same sorts of things that Beer was critiquing uh, at this time. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe on the left we need to have sort of a, a arm's length consideration of, of of that. There's a there's a lot of it where I think it could be useful. There's also a lot of it that is inherently rooted in sort of a, the way a state thinks um, mm-hmm. that that may right. need to be overcome. Um, I mean. Maybe they maybe they have, but it certainly hasn't done dick for our military. You know, like they have they have they they still can't win a war. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's it's like the IDF talking about like uh, uh, fucking Deleuze and that sort of thing, like reading a thousand plateaus. The IDF reading it, like they just they just used it to figure out, hey, it would be cool to just blow up walls and just come on in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's very much that vein of vein of sort of thinking, um, for sure. I don't know. I guess American style cybernetics aren't all there is, or Israeli style. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. it's, I'd be interested in some of this like cybernetic st- strategic theory because like the left desperately needs to answer some questions of organization, but not in the way that the Third International tried to answer these questions, kind of apart mm-hmm. from society, like. That wasn't their self-conception. It isn't what they intended to do, but, you know, that's just sort of the historical situation they found themselves in. Not to go all new age, but I feel like it comes, like, the difference between American cybernetics and, like, British cybernetics comes out of a consideration of, like, more Eastern modes of thought. I don't want to be, like, Orientalist in the dumb, like, spacey new age way, but it definitely comes out of a consideration of, like, sort of Taoism, Taoism, yeah, Taoism and that sort of thing. And, like, Stafford Beer, like, more explicitly draws upon it, draws upon Taoism and, like, Eastern modes of thought later in his career more explicitly, although it's always there. You just can't really admit it when he's, like, working with, like, big managerial types and businesses and that sort of thing. Yeah, totally. Um, like, I mean, when he's um, when he's writing Brain of the Firm and that sort of stuff, it's all very straight-laced kind of managerial stuff. And then um, then later on, he goes kind of like after, actually after this point, right after after Chile, yeah. after designing Freedom, he really opens up. And I mean, like his his book that comes after these um, Platform for Change really opens up with like I'm basically the, in the opening lines. He's like, I'm I'm tired of hiding what I really think and who I am, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and now, now it's gloves off basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Come out, babe. Come out. Nowadays he would foreground that stuff on purpose though. Yeah. It's all about like repackaging like exotic Eastern ideas, you know? Yeah, totally. Oh, definitely. Like, yeah. So, you know, he was really heavily influenced, um, by his time in India, uh, with the, with the British army, I think it was, um, you know, he, he was there, serve on military business, but he took the opportunity to kind of like immerse himself in, in, in all of the, uh, local spiritual practices. And that was all just very like closeted for him until after the, the Chilean revolution. And then it, it started to come out more as like, um, a part of like, a, a like a sort of a background element of his thinking that had not been, um, 
not been obvious and not been stated, but then he he kind of made it obvious uh, later in his life. And you're you're absolutely right that like um, it's very in vogue to kind of uh, take these kinds of like um, uh, Eastern philosophical systems that kind of stuff and like bring it into organizational theory now. Um, I guess he was just ahead of his time, but like, hopefully we can salvage something out of it that isn't just like, you know, the kind of typical, like toxic deployment of like enlightenment and self-care discourse to justify like personal responsibility and ignoring oppression. I mean, yeah, you do say that, Jake, but think of how many, how philosophy courses in the United States and like the Eastern and like Europe in general just generally don't touch about touch upon like Taoism and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm about to I'm about to start teaching uh, intro to philosophy and like <laughs> I'm going to have a lot of caveats about <laughs> what is discussed mm-hmm. in the course because it's like this is a really narrow yeah. view of human thought uh, but you know yeah. this is what it is. It's incredibly narrow. Even the people who pick up like the, the flag of you know decolonizing thought and decolonization generally just go back to like European philosophers like Heidegger and Foucault right. to like rationalize their own like decolonial thought, Decol- their frameworks for decolonization, uh, philosophical yeah. decolonization praxis, whatever, whatever the hell you want to call what they're doing. Well, you know, the truth is, is that it's it's really a lot of work to be acquainted with a whole different tradition, Can, and a lot of a lot of the philosophical traditions that are outside of the sort of Western framework, you know, they have an entirely different canon that you need to get familiar with. And, you know, that's like a lot of work. It takes a lot of engagement to really chew on a canon. And that's why people stay so cloistered within their, like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Western, you know, like Western and uh, Western philosophy and the philosophy that was sort of continued on in the Islamic world. It's a pretty big enterprise. It spans like a long time and it spans a lot of places. And so for a lot of people, that's close enough to world philosophy where they don't care and they just wash their hands of getting acquainted with traditions outside of it. Um, and sometimes they don't even get acquainted with the, the part of the tradition that is developed in the Islamic world, even though it's perfectly continuous. And a lot of these traditions are basically sometimes are not even really carried through writing per se, but are just carried through like, you know, oral traditions and that sort of thing like in rural China and that sort of, where literacy is relatively low. Yeah. Oh, th- well, that's another, that's another um, layer of what makes, you know, a truly integrated world philosophy very difficult because the whole concept of um, what we know as philosophy to a large degree is based on written texts and texts that are able to be, you know, transmitted semi-reliably through time. And there's extensive debates in Africana philosophy and like indigenous philosophy about how to regard, you know, oral text. It's absolutely both true that like the (laughs) philosophical tradition remains quite uh, Eurocentric. Uh, It's trying to sort of do outreach stuff, but very much on its own terms. Um, And also it's very much the case that like management theory is very omnivorous and open and just like, okay, like we'll just take whatever, you know, like, uh, these are, these are two sort of like, what, uh, what what are they called? Like, you know, um, sort of Royal sciences, 
that um, have different different approaches, right? Hypothetically, a project like cybernetics could maybe like this is some speculative dumb stuff, but like hypothetically, uh, cybernetics could come like overcome like the boundaries between like Eastern and Western like bodies of thought and like even like the distinction between science and like philosophy that and like this like that that's the initial goal of like uh cybernetics not the overcoming of different uh difference between western modes of thought and east generally eastern modes of thought although they shouldn't really be collectively like ratified in that way but um it's more of like a unifying science of like sciences like that's the over that's the initial project of cybernetics to find laws for all the working through all the sciences yeah but this is exactly what Engels wanted to do right. in dialectics of nature and in anti-juring and there's something about Hegel's dialectical system that is explicitly like non law abiding and Hegel wrote stuff basically saying like you're never going to be able to express what I'm saying about dialectics in a, like a set of formal laws because what I'm talking about are the gaps in forms mm-hmm. that you know when when you recarve up the world with different concepts there's always an excluded middle and as you like move on from different ways of carving up the world being relevant you know these things like the way that those things like pass into each other. Whereas like, yeah, cybernetics like gives us the opportunity to do some kind of generalization that approaches, you know, finding the laws of analysis. Yeah. Right. That dialectical materialism traditionally was trying to attain, but it's very important that we acknowledge, you know, what, what some people in in critical theory do acknowledge, and that like us, like actually like the the, the frogs, like the, <laughs> the the French Marxists in the fifties, like Sartre and Althusser, uh, both articulate this. That you know, like what Marxist dialectics would be, it will be qualitatively different than Hegelian dialectics, and you know, mm-hmm. and that whole early Marxist tradition about philosophy of science is painfully like trying to shoehorn and try to do what Marx did, but not like as doesn't have the same finesse. Like, Mm -hmm. whereas I feel like cybernetics like kind of squares the circle in a way. And, um, is, is like a jet is just a genuine, like theoretical advance. And basically you don't really have to engage with like, you know, Hegel to understand systems theory. I, I, I think the commonality I can see between, Hegelian dialectics and, and cybernetics is that um, these are both sort of perspectives on the world that are oriented towards lack, um, that uh, the, that towards limitation, um, and, and uh, I think that that has a lot of sort of um, common results that come out of them, although they have quite different methods. Um, they have a sort of universalizing orientation. They have that orient. They at the same time they also have an orientation towards like limitation. Um, also with Hegel, there's like an emphasis on holism, just general whole organisms and whole and like uh, basically like sort of proto 
proto uh, systems theory sort of stuff in within Hegel itself, and it's interesting because when I first like started really getting into philosophy, I read like Bertrand Russell's uh, just general history of Western philosophy, big which mistake. is yeah, big mistake. But he ba- <laughs> big mistake overall, but it was interesting because now that I look back on it, his little chapter on Hegel, where he basically dismisses Hegel as being a mysticist that's like influenced by mysticism, kind of actually makes more sense. And probably what made him a more lasting philosopher, la- more like worthwhile philosopher than Bertrand Russell <laughs> in the end, <laughs> it, 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 like... You know, it's just like he wasn't limited by a certain kind of like hyper uh, Cartesian mode of like Western thought that Bertrand Russell is and generally like the earlier earlier developments of analytical philosophy are just tied up in. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but even it's funny because, yes, Bertrand Russell is basically chained to his period, his like big project, uh, the Prince. Principia Mathematica, you know, it tanks and, you know, he's kind of just known the way Sartre is as like a cultural like figure in philosophy. Whereas you look at the collaborator on or you look at his co-author on the Principia, uh, Alfred North Whitehead, who goes on to do like totally awesome bong rip process ontology in the analytic tradition. And like, yeah, so you're, you're right about Burton Russell and you're right about a whole slew of this like of analytical philosophers but like yeah there's like pretty sweet like liminal spaces within that tradition that yeah. like are generative i mean the what my sort of experience was with like engaging with the logical positivists um Later in my sort of intellectual development, you know, like I had that kind of initial introduction to Russell and then I, ha- I went to uh, university and and I had a lot of teachers coming out of the continental tradition who just dismiss, dismiss the whole thing as, as narrow minded. And whenever I looked over at the analytic philosophers, I knew that that se- certainly seemed to track. Um, and when I kind of went back to the history and I saw where logical positivism came from and sort of the context they were working within, uh, it made a lot more sense to me uh, where it was coming from and how it, like I could give it a much more charitable reading in the sense that, um, you know, you had this split in neo-Kantianism that happens uh, prior to this. And these were people living in Vienna at a time of fascist ascendancy, the university was controlled by the fascists for the most part. Uh, yeah. You know, Germany was going fascist, Italy already gone fascist. And you have people like Heidegger who are kind of working out of that sort of Hegelian side of things. Um, not just Heidegger. There, there were figures within Austria itself uh, who are using that if you say Heidegger is a Hegelian, I think Heidegger stands will get mad at you, but go on. Yeah, no, I mean, 
I think, He's I, a I German think national would, figure. It would be accurate, more accurate to say that Heidegger was influenced by the Marburg School, which was uh, influenced by Neocontinism, which was influenced by Hegel. <laughs> uh, there is there is a kind of like there is a kind of breakdown of Neocontinism um, into different extreme uh, sides around this time. Um, but you know uh, what I, what I'm trying to say is that like the logical positivists were trying to make a philosophical rejoinder to the sort of discourse that was happening around them at that time, which was using that kind of mysticism in order to justify fascism. Um, and and right. so, like, when you understand that actual context as opposed to just, like, what logical positivism went on to be in a very sterile Cold War American <laughs> uh, environment, uh, I, I have a lot more sympathy for what they were trying to do. Oh, yeah. No, because that's why they, they wanted to eliminate metaphysics. You know, metaphysics, Julius. Metaphysics, you know? Like, the whole Marxist tradition talking about metaphysics and trying trying to just get rid of that entirely. Like, nobody took that more seriously than the logical positivists. I don't know. In, his, in the history of philosophy, like, it's hard to not look at them as, like, chaotic, like, uh, kind of figures. Kind of tragic, but also sort of dignified in their attempt. Yeah, like say what you will about dialectics of nature, you can have. There's like pe- there's like people like uh, uh, Gould who like actually applied it in a way that wasn't dogmatic, and there's general insights that you can get from dialectical materialism that's probably drawn out by Mao. Well, I know people are gonna give me shit for saying Mao drew out like yeah, aspects of, of dialectical. How dare you? Dialect. Yeah, uh, he didn't really but, understand it. That's cool. I'm. I feel like he, there. There's something in contradiction that's actually worthwhile, but um, that's like specifically drawn from Taoist dialectics in relation. But anyways, yeah, yeah. There is just like you can say there was something relatively useful drawn from it, where logical positivism is just a solid dead end in thought. It basically proved that you can't like. It basically, like, basically, it, it it was a great foil for people like Gödel, who made a genuine advance in in thought. Where it's like, now nah, you can't prove the kinds of things you guys are trying to prove. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it basically provokes a sympathetic figure into into doing that. And uh, G. A. Cohen has a sort of defensive logical positivism where he's like, he just thinks that anglophone like thought is better for having passed through its influence, which I think a lot of people disagree with, but considering the kind of ways that people think that like dominate the world and build, you know, very, very useful models that help them dominate markets and dominate our lives. Like I, I actually take that quite seriously. I mean, yeah, to, to a certain extent, but I feel like that's also a byproduct of like its relationship to the military, just the human, just like, the attempt by the social sciences to graft themselves onto like the military industrial complex during the fifties with the United States, like basically the whole of academia is disciplined towards yes. like getting research for the military, and 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 still kind of is, and still basically kind of is, like it's it's mostly oriented towards like big state industries, kind of like that, like defense contractors, or you know, just the state itself. 
So, I mean, the first thing is uh, I just want to correct myself. You know, Heidegger was influenced by the Southwest School, not the Marburg School. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, Breaking my boss in. Uh, for those listening, uh, you, you don't have to at me. Um, but uh, also, uh, I, I have a lot. I, I, I'm quite a big fan of Neurath. Um, uh, and, I was just thinking about him. Yeah, and, and you know... Um, I really have a lot of appreciation for his work on unity of science, um, which yeah. was tied to uh, logical positivism. Um, and that, yeah. that kind of idea of like, uh, I mean, there, there's, there's so much that falls out of that in terms of like a kind of nuanced, nuanced understanding of reality, a, a orientation towards internationalism uh, a view mm-hmm. of philosophy as something that um, is not exclusively limited to professional academics. Um, yeah. All of that stuff, I think, is extremely good. Um, and it was all kind of quashed by the Cold War. Um, and I like I talk to mm. people in philosophy of science these days and they, they're like, oh, yeah, there's like this new movement. I'm like, oh, yeah, Neureff already thought about that like decades ago. <laughs> it's just yeah, yeah. Like, he died too early well, and he was silenced by the war. You know, it's, it's yeah. well, the, the thing is, is that that is the manifesto of the logical positivists was yeah. to, like towards a scientific worldview. And Neurath is giving basically the definitive statement of this. And I think if you're a Marxist and you're thinking about the scientific worldview, the, the resonance is a bit obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Like what, what Michael Heinrich would call worldview Marxism and, you know, the kind of set of principles that Engels sets out in Auntie During, you know, whatever, however you quibble with the, the phrasing of the principle or this or that interpretation of dialectics, like it's not hard to see the resemblance to scientific socialism in this like scientific worldview that yeah. Lorath is defending. And to sort of just bring this back to the discussion of cybernetics, I think there's a lot in Neurath that is compatible with a cybernetic orientation, especially as Beer formulates it. Um, because, you know, we, we tend to think about, like, I, I guess there's a kind of naive understanding of Neurath that he was just this very, like, irascible uh, debater and, like, had a kind of, like, absolutist positions about philosophy because of his hostility to metaphysics. Um, but like when you actually get into like the sort of breadth of his thinking, you can see, oh yeah, like there's actually a lot of overlap here. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of really cool stuff. Um, you know, what, what ended up happening with logical positivism is of course really regrettable. So, um, yeah. yeah. Have you guys read, uh, Nissan Taib? Taib? Am I saying that? Yeah. I don't know. Nassim Taleb? I can't. I can't. I, I think we've established on this. Is, is this the black show swan? Continually. Taleb yeah, the black Ali. swan guy. Black stars. Yeah, right. I cannot. I cannot pronounce names <laughs> at all. Um, yeah, so. Mostaf and uh, Nassim Taleb. Yeah. Nas. Yeah, basically, like it, it's actually kind of similar to a lot of. He actually has uh, anti-fragility. Uh, as a concept mm-hmm. is generally similar to like cosmic anarchy and Nick Land only it's probably more rational because it's not a weird metaphysical thing going on or at least you know it's Sounds not like viability. yeah basically anti-fragility it's like a rationalization that he uses to justify like just sort of like his like 
like neo Schumpeter sort of like view of capitalism that's like sent around like sort of entrepreneurs, you know, introducing introducing black swans or whatever these sort of like new innovations that change everything and the whole of human history is basically guided by like great like great individuals or these events that come out of nowhere and essentially yeah that's that's something that comes out of like complexity his position generally comes out of complexity sciences that are like you know, a sort of later development on cybernetics, although there, cybernetics is not. It, it, it there's there's a lot of loss. What stuff loss in between the the transition from like cybernetics to modern complexity sciences. Yeah, and that that's a that's a history I've kind of been exposed to by reading uh, Mirowski, like uh, Machine Dreams. Um, but I, I, I don't have a super great grasp of like, what is the specific process by which you get from cybernetics to complexity theory? Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit fuzzy in my head, uh, uh, still. So it's, it's something I'd like to know more about. Yeah. I, I think it's just because like cyber, it takes like insights that are in cybernetics that end up like like not really being all that um all that credible i guess like for some reason academic circles mm. because cybernetics just generally gets pushed to the side out of academia yes. and that sort of thing and it's just like solely in the military industrial complex or like just you know people like beer just like working in like business Right. Or it ends up being like weird associated with science fiction, and generally that just leaves people in academia not really to look into it deeper. I guess. Yeah, you can you can only take that kind of uh, Jameson type ironic stance towards it, right? Right. Guess uh, <laughs> yeah, so we want to go around with concluding thoughts uh, on this. Yeah, sure. Um... This is really, really accessible. It's like, uh, it's really fun to think of this on the equivalent of PBS or the BBC or whatever. Um, and well, it's the CBC, so split the difference. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, one divided so, by the other. So basically. sure it hurts. <laughs> yeah, it's sick burn Canada. Yeah, it's really <laughs> the Canadian in the room. I, 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 I know Sorry. way too much about the history of the CBC because I came out of a Canadian communications program, and like, it is, it is, it is, it is not a happy history. <laughs> oh no. Uh, <laughs> I. I actually grew up pretty close to Canada, so I used to watch CBC, like the television. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, this was my main source for Simpsons reruns. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Well, anyway. So this is a great, like, popularization effort. And you can tell by listening to the lectures that he threw everyone for a loop and, like, Towards the end, I don't know, it says that th there will be a, a, a rebuttal and, you know, like, like, there was some controversy over him having revised a draft or something. I just, it made it sound like that in airing his views, he caused quite a stir. Uh, uh, what? He just, just called for the collapse of all modern <laughs> institutions. <laughs> <laughs> 
Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of what I was going to read. So, basically, I think that there's, you know, something great here. Um, It is sort of a bitter pill that if this resonates with us, we have to swallow the way that this sort of like, yeah, we're anti-institutional thought was used in generation X as a kind of ideology. Um, and so we have to be aware to the degree that this is like some, you know, bong rip bullshit backflip cognitive map to like justify a certain kind of institutional defense, which sounds dumb. How could you read this and do that? But, you know, welcome to the 90s and 80s. Like, so, I don't know. Like, I think that this this communicates to me more, like, why, like, when I've approached technical disciplines, the kind of intellectual culture is so much more uh, optimistic and enterprising and intuitive and, frankly, skilled than the Marxist uh, intellectual, like, worlds that I've come across. Like, they just have, like, a better orientation towards basically the same shit that Marxists want to be oriented towards, for the most part. Like, understanding institutions and viability and yada yada. Like, all the things that you would take seriously if you gave a shit about, you know, I I don't know, like, reconceptualizing what socialism would be or something. Like, from a utopian or a scientific standpoint, like, at all. Like, (laughs) like... I think where... So, revisiting this text... Um, has been interesting. Uh, I think where I'm at with it, I have a a sort of few points that I'm kind of pondering. Um, I think the first one is that you see a lot of this emphasis on, on um, autonomy in, in beer. And, you know, when you, you think about that from a broad social perspective, like I can see how that, that would be very positive. Uh, But I, I really have a hard time reconciling that with something like reconstruction. Um, it, 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 it's, it troubles me a lot. Um, and like, I see kind of like, you know, we've had a lot of people in our Slack sort of mention the, the example of Rojava and it's kind of like, well, you know, I, I'm no expert on that. It does seem like there's some interesting stuff being there that kind of rhymes with what Beer is saying. Um, you know, that, that is, I, I, I can't make any kind of strong pronouncements. Um, but that's just a point that, that it, it weighs on my mind. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but what about reconstruction? <laughs> right? Well, like that, that, t- yeah. that ties in to exactly like how Cybersyn failed. Right. Like the, like the, the preconditions for its existence was a class struggle against the bourgeoisie and its failure was a result of the failure of that class struggle. Right. And so like basically for reconstruction to have been successful, you know, um, Lincoln and, People, the people in political power in Washington would have had to conduct a conscious class war against the remnants of the uh, old slave-owning regime, which they didn't do, right? So, you know, like the preconditions for some kind of, yeah, autonomy and self-management would be basically the, the destruction of the class system. Well, they, they actually 
they did have a conscious class struggle at a certain point that like the slaveholding class kicking and screaming dragged Lincoln to an understanding of class consciousness. Lincoln kept trying to prioritize the national interest, but eventually he became convinced and you can see this in his writings that there really wasn't a reconcilable class difference and that the slaveholders would have to be expropriated without compensation. And he like, for even just a few months before the end of the war, he was kicking himself, kicking and screaming against understanding things in a conflictual sense. It sort of just, he just didn't like thinking of things as conflict. He wanted everyone to get along. Um, but at the end of the did, day... Wait, did, did, did he seriously consider uh, land reform, though? Like, was that on so, the agenda for Lincoln? So, like, Lincoln was killed very soon after the end of the Civil War, and, and his vice president that came in was much more racist. <laughs> like, Lincoln Lincoln was a white supremacist and only started to think seriously about black suffrage towards the end of his life. For the beginning of his abolitionist career, he followed someone named Henry Clay, who, after abolition, wanted to deport all the slaves and recolonize them in Africa. Um, so, so like Lincoln's background was coming out of the Whig party, you know, just sort of, just sort of the moderates of his time period. And like generally the, the idea of like freeing the slaves to free them on their own, you know, was not a particularly popular idea, even within the Republican party, the Republican party generally before the civil war was more focused on limiting the spread of slavery. There was definitely like abolitionists within the party, but it was more focused on limiting yeah. the spread of slavery. Yeah. Into that's the, why like, the war started. The West. And yeah, even during the war, like Lincoln was apprehensive. Lincoln and the party was apprehensive about making it about slavery until it became strategically important yes. for the porn in a, as a way of like getting sla- uh crippling like the southern economy by getting slaves to run away. Yeah, also just enlisting sla- like former slaves as troops. Like they were just as a matter of policy turning down you know, runaway slaves that wanted to join, you know, people that were going to fight like their freedom depended on it, that had an intimate knowledge of the enemy. And they kept turning them away and hurting the overall morale of their own effort by recognizing a form of property that they were really, you know, fundamentally, they had to fight against in order to win the war. But to get back to the original point, maybe, um, yeah, you'd basically, there needs to be like a class war as a precondition for you know, th- this kind of... Right. And I guess it's kind of like... My thought is not so much like, do we need the class war? Because, I mean, yeah, of course. Uh, but um, it's it's like, what does autonomy look like in that context? Right? Like, is there a way in which Reconstruction could have been oriented in such a way that it, like there there could have been some degree of uh, autonomy in areas in the south that but still carried on the class war um and that would have been effective like i i mean i just think about those kinds of situations where it's like you get into this titanic uh social struggle and like where does autonomy fit into organization in those contexts because i think that's important to revolutionary strategy yeah uh, clr james like looks at like um, like the, takes like a sort of like black autonomous perspective, which also like Harry Cleaver. Mm-hmm. But um, 
you know, autonomy for whom? In Reconstruction, p- part of it yeah. is enfranchising the black population and asserting black autonomy. Like, and, you know, like, that's part of the design of freedom would be to tweak for these things. I think that would be mm-hmm. true, you know, with right. regards to sex and gender, with regards to uh, every oppression under the sun. And uh, I guess the other point that I, I really... Um, have been sort of thinking about a lot here is this uh, this definition of, of viability. Um, uh, so there is a there's a section uh, in this in this lecture series um, uh, where um, Beer talks about uh, the sort of dysfunctions of current bureaucracy and the way that it, it becomes sort of cancerous and and. Uh, and continues to perpetuate itself, right? And then, and then the the term he uses there is is uh, what what is it, Shane? It's a uh, uh, hyper stable, ultra ultra stability. Yeah, ultra stability. Yeah, because when you kind of look at the definition of ultra stability, it it seems to be more or less the definition of viability in slightly different words. And I think what Beer is really trying to get at here is that. Viable systems in the sense that beer means them are viable in the long run. Uh, it kind of gets to that idea about like sustainability a little bit. Um, and there's also that aspect of freedom. And I think that beer's argument here is that having that autonomy and cohesion, having that freedom that it produces will lead to viability in the long run even if we could say that, say, the Pentagon today is a viable system in the short run, right? Like, it, it is, like, without question, uh, ultra-stable, right? Like, it, it, <laughs> it does a lot to preserve its existence in this world. Um, it, 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 um, it, and it, it is effective in a certain way in doing that, right? Like, whether that's about getting funding, whether that's about, uh, you know, destroying enemies of America... You know, whether that's about having certain propaganda efforts within the American um, society, um, it does do all of those things. But it certainly does not match the VSM uh, that that Beer is describing. Um, and so I think there's just there's just a little bit more thinking we, we, we need to do to, to kind of clarify what we're talking mm-hmm. about. I think this is actually an, a great example of how the short format of this really kind of hurts it in that... Um, a lot of the concerns there are, are actually kind of addressed in the early chapters of Heart of the Enterprise, which was published after this, I think. It came afterwards. But where Beer talks mm-hmm. about the whole notion that the purpose of a system is what it does, but then he talks about how do you define the purposes of a system. And for him, purpose is like an inherently subjective thing, that the the observer is involved in the interpretation of a system, and that, like... You know, for for these kind of social systems, like what purpose they actually serve is going to be a political, a sociopolitical kind of judgment, right? Like um, for one person, the Pentagon is a machine that produces a paycheck. For another person, the Pentagon is a machine that produces uh, death and destruction. For another person, it's a machine that produces freedom or whatever. That this this is like um, via, because viability is measured in terms of like how good is this thing at its purpose evaluating viability has to pass by way of like a sociopolitical process of evaluating what do you, what do we even want out of these systems and then 
the bureaucracies, these kind of like cancerous bureaucracies are, are really systems which have become ultra stable, but at a purpose, which is self-defined for themselves, like a kind of, um, you know, like an Ouroboros, right? Like it's just a, a sort of a self-generating thing rather than it being something mm -hmm. whose purpose is kind of accountable to, to any kind of, um, to, to a society. Um, so unfortunately yeah, yeah. he can't cram I, that I in like here, right? Like there's, there's nowhere near enough time, but then this is kind of a bit of a problem, right? That like to, to really get, to really get beer, you're, you're looking at a couple of thousand pages of fucking study, like, and it's, oh boy, <laughs> it's, it's a fucking, it's a hell of a project, you know? Yeah. And I, I do think there's a certain way in which that, that kind of critique, like kind of loops back to like Hegel's philosophy. Yeah, of right, yeah. Um, and, and his understanding of the state and like the sort of cohesion of society and all that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And then, you know, we can kind of look at Marx's critique of that. Right. So I think there's a lot of like productive directions we can go mm -hmm. with this. Uh, it's just, there's, there's a little bit of fuzziness uh, here that I, I would like to see further refined. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's even potentially fuzziness in Beer's thinking that we probably need to investigate further. I think this is kind of my, my closing remarks is that like, um, I think I'm, I'm largely with, with Kyle on this, that like, um, I think this this is very promising stuff, and I think this this is like kind of hand in glove with Marxism. Like I think there's we we can claim cybernetics as a socialist technology, um, and but I would also caution against kind of thinking of it as a kind of silver bullet solution. I think you need you need a kind of Beerian Marxism or whatever, or a Marx Marxist Beerianism. Um, where each informs the other, because like to to design freedom in this way, you need the class struggle, and for the class struggles to succeed, you need a design for for organizations. It's a it's a yin yang scenario. Like you, I don't think you can really, I don't think you can lean on any one of these pillars and hope to succeed. Uh, and I would really caution against simply kind of leaning on Berian cybernetics as as your only pillar, right? Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Jake, uh, I, I, I am interested in his thoughts and wish to subscribe to his newsletter. <laughs> you can subscribe to fucking generally fuck unit. <laughs> yeah, Emancipation Network. Yeah. <laughs> oh goddamn. Can is if you like get enough patrons, will you visit the beer estate and read the capital excerpts and have a. Like his yeah, his commentary on capital and and then uh, make an episode about it. That stuff's down in Manchester. I could do. You that. know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we if we really got enough Patreon money, then like we could both go to Metaforum, <laughs> which is like the, which is the like uh, annual conference of sort of beer rights. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. Um, which uh, Shane visited oh, last yeah. year. I, uh, I met so, um, yeah. I met Raúl Espejo, who was for a while the director of CyberSend, or one of the very high <laughs> places. He worked shit. worked very very closely with beer, and he he basically he barely escaped with his life. Um, from the oh from the, the 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 coup, um, and it was it was only kind of after we were leaving and heading to the airport that I realized it was that role, and it was because I was talking to someone. Um, we were heading to the airport, and it was like, oh yeah, like um, you know, we come every year, and like it's it's role doesn't really talk about the the the, the practicality so much these days. He kind of focuses on the theory because like it's just too fucking painful to like talk about implementation because like he all of his he was a friend of salvador Allende and like he became right. a good friend of beer and all of his all of his fucking buddies got shot you know <laughs> so he's just this sweet old chilean guy who shows up at these these conferences and is like he's like really into the theory and stuff but you, you just can't shift him onto the practice and uh, discussing it he was just, just kind of really really sweet guy but like yeah kind of tragic 
Um, do, do you ever watch any of like uh, Guzman's films? <laughs> no. Um, this guy who directed uh, the Battle of Chile. You ever see that? Okay, flick? I should check that out. No, that that's kind of how I heard about the Chilean thing, and it, like it's a it's a haunting film. Uh, like they had to smuggle the canisters out of the country through the Swiss embassy yeah. or through the Swedish embassy. Wow. But there's a part in the movie where one of the camera people gets shot and dies, and Holy so you see him dying shit. from his perspective. Jesus Christ! Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, he gets he, get, he, get, he gets yeah he oh gets killed by a fascist. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great film. But the guy's filmography after that is kind of haunted by it. And he did this movie oh. called. Um, but he did this movie where it's, it gets kind of it takes place again in Chile like later, mm-hmm. and um, it's more it's contemporary. It came out a few years ago, and it's about um, these these uh, Chilean um, space observatories, and it gets like it gets like super metaphysical. And there's a, there, that's how I knew about the stuff about like the women going through like the desert, um, looking at looking up like bodies and shit like that. Um, that's like a part of it. It's all, but you, you see like how, yeah, it's got nostalgia for the light. That's what it was called it's from 2010. Um, and it's kind of about, I don't know. It, it gets very cosmic in terms of like the, the almost followed an entropy from like what happened. Um, and just kind of the state of where Chilean society is at right now. But you get this sense that like Chile is like a really chill ass, like literally a chill place. Like the people all seem like really cool. Um, and you can kind of understand, you know, like how, how they could maybe get to that kind of democratic socialism and how I know like in, in, in the recent uh, revolutions episode, um, the guy points out how Marx and Engels kind of said that the Paris commune failed because the, you know, in some ways like the, they were too decent and you kind of, you kind of get the same sense with like the, the Chilean revolution. Like if, if they might've been able to carry it further uh, if they were a little nastier about it. (laughs) That, that was, that was Castro's perspective. Um, you know, uh, right? It's, yeah, it's it's like he gave Allende a gun, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he's ple- pleading with him to the end you, to to You, you got to be non-compliant yeah. here. Read this book. It's by Nick Land. It's from the future. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, intelligence only only matters when it gets mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. It, it's it's really hard. Yeah, no, I no, mean, it is even today. You, you, I mean, if you're interested in the Chilean Revolution, you have to watch that movie because it's like they filmed it on the ground when it was okay, happening. Jesus, yeah, yeah. So they, it's like it's like it's like six hours long, but it's it's really great. And like they they show strikes and street demonstrations. Mm-hmm. They they talk to workers and they talk about the way they're like creating like the industrial cords and like coordinating the economy. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty it's pretty great. Nice, Jake. You gotta you gotta introduce more of our audience to dope socialist films. Yeah. <laughs> um, who have we got left for closing remarks? Rosa? Rosa. I can't I can't even like comment because television is so fucking loud in the background. <laughs> um yeah, but and my phone mic just picks it all up unlike the snowball mic. But um yeah, um I wish I got more time to comment on, like, some of the stuff in relation to, like, computers. Um, that part was relatively interesting, how, like, technology is, like, how, like, technology is affected, like, the implementation of technology is limited by power, in a sense, like, you know, uh, how, like, automation is only implemented to benefit the managerial class and, like, the capitalist class. What the overarching capitalist class, 
rather than like you know being an advancement onto itself so computer technology is ultimately limited to just being used to manage manage people and that's why they're functionally afraid of technology it's merely a tool of their like domination i thought that was relatively interesting um uh, yeah that 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 was that was that was a big part of it although i do feel he probably would have benefited from engaging with like other bodies of thought outside of cybernetics in relation to like you know political philosophy marxism obviously uh he ends up doing that later on but yeah i i feel like it would have been helpful for engaging it because generally like some of the stuff that he had thoughts that he has about liberty and freedom are like counter counter posed to like general political philosophy in ways that are kind of unconventional but kind of come out of the fact that he's not dealing he's not really engaging in that discourse per se or at least not here he's he he might direct in his like more thorough writings he probably directs it uh, directly engages in it more right I'm assuming um, he's not, yeah, he's, he's, he's always gone with this kind of little sort of blind spot for the sociological stuff. And I, like I said, like, I think it would be really fascinating to see a, a different beer that engaged with Marxism or even just kind of engaged with political economy much earlier. Um, mm. I think he just came to it so late in, in his, in his career, um, that it, it, it wasn't that much of a, of a kind of, um, a focus. I guess that's kind of, that's kind of our project, right? Yeah. To, to kind of yeah. really do that fusion that he didn't manage to do in his own time. Yeah, unfortunately, he spent too much time with the balls. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, not very constructive. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Read, read your marks. Yep. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the show, and hope you join us again next week for more of our usual general intellectual shenanigans. If you'd like to keep up with us in the meantime, you can go to generalintellectunit.net or find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook. We're on all the podcasting apps, so like, rate, subscribe, the usual stuff. Also, be sure to check out Swampside Chats and their backlog, and check out emancipation.network and our other sister show, From Alpha to Omega. Swampside and From Alpha to Omega, they're both excellent shows and excellent folks. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.